Italian driving. What's behind me is not important. Studying, studying, studying. Here comes Cooper out of that outside move again. Cooper, outside. Can he pull the move? Matt Cooper with a brilliant move on the outside. Never seen that done through Mosses. And look at the run that Matt Cooper has. Hey, 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 everybody. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show of record, the show that matters, and as always, the show that's going to put you on pole position for news, commentary, and opinion in the world of motorcycle road racing. And as always, I am your host, The Duke, and it is with pleasure that I do welcome you back for episode number 52. That would be the James Toslin edition of uh, Rumble Strip Radio. Thank you for joining us. To uh, anyone who's new listening to the show, welcome on board. And to those of you who've been listening for a long time, hey, Appreciate your uh, patronage. Welcome back, and you guys are uh, valued members of the listening family here. So we are not mobile. We are still at the domicile, but actually out in uh, Duke's garage tonight, as uh, unlike Greg's garage, this is actually a real garage, not a studio set. So uh, the last couple days have been a little bit crazy around the house, um, running around trying to get 100 things uh, caught up on since I was gone most of the last two weeks uh, with, the, uh, with that Pistons gig, and unfortunately that ended badly. But uh, So almost caught up, but in the process of doing that, the recording got pushed back and back, and I finally got caught up today, but now that it's late, uh, we're after the 11 o'clock hour on Thursday evening, the girlfriend is asleep, and if I start recording, I'll keep her up, trust me, the... It's a small house. It's, you know, tall house, but narrow, but anyways. Um, anyways, not that any of you care a whole lot about that, but we might have a little bit of ambience. You got the wind blowing. It's about 85 degrees outside. Uh, the citronella, citronella candles are burning because, well, it is uh, summer here in Little Baghdad, and mosquitoes are out, and they are look like some good ones this year because I thought I saw a couple with tail numbers on them, and the tail numbers were visible. So with that, let's uh, take care of the administrative side of stuff. Of course, the uh, website, www.rumblestripradio.com. Feedback, always welcome. And uh, let's, ooh, actually had a lot of feedback this week, so appreciate it. Uh, a couple of you guys are like, uh, well, you know, that was cool turnaround four days. Well, not so fast turnaround this week. Sorry about that. Uh, but feedback, rumblestripradio at gmail.com. You know the usual, uh, usual deal. You can subscribe to the show, and I encourage you to do so. Uh, on the links on the website, either through the iTunes Music Store or for the iTunes Music Store, whatever that thing is these day, these days, um, or just through your you know for your favorite RSS reader, uh, you can get that link there as well. Uh, usual links that you can click on there, surf through, do some searches. Um, 
but I will tell you, uh, head on over to motoleum.com and go buy some gear from uh, from Motoleum. He uh, back for their well last week. It's a home home Grand Prix for them because it's Ducati and uh, Premec. And this week's Grand Prix is a home Grand Prix because, well, they are a Spanish-based team, though down in Madrid, not uh, Barcelona, but that's okay. Anyways, let's uh, let's get those guys taken care of. Uh, well, or Liam taken care of. Go buy some gear. I should slow down and probably can hit all this. My notes are a little um, little all over the place because, well, I'm not at my computer. Didn't have time to type everything up. We're scattered about ooh, four, four, five, six pages of notes. Cool. Mostly in order of how I want to go down them. Uh, apologies up front. Uh, the Canadian guys had their first race up at Shannonville. Or no, not Shannonville. Shannonville is typically where the first race of the year is. Not this year. They were out at uh, Mont Tremblant. And uh, if memory serves, Jordan Zoke won both the Superbike and the 600 race. Uh, unfortunately, I forgot to write down the results before I headed on out here. So uh, we'll try and touch on those guys next week. I'll write myself a note to do that. I'm going to give a shout-out to everyone in the Motorcycle Podcast group out there, people uh, putting out the shows. Ray uh, Ray put out a show, what, about a week and a half ago. That was a pretty good, uh, that was actually a really good show. And he, he spent some time towards the end talking about sliding and, and spinning up the rear, which was, uh, it was actually a pretty good segment. Um, everyone else, MotoGP, uh, Bob's been busy kicking out the uh, the MotoGPOD. Twisted Wrist is running strong up north. Um, looking for something from Alan from uh, WSBKPod.com, uh, but I imagine he's uh, real busy with work. I do want to let everyone know that show two for the Side Stand Cafe is out. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to go on over there, I uh, would encourage you to head on over to sidestandcafe.com. Show 2 is up. Uh, you can listen to it there, or there's another one you can uh, subscribe uh, through the iTunes store, uh, either on the site or if you go, if you uh, have iTunes, you can do it there. It is uh, basically it's about buying a bike, and this is one that uh, myself, uh, Ray from uh, the Knee Dragon podcast, and Brandon, who was uh, one of the uh, uh, motocast crew and uh, we uh, and then uh, Prubert's in there as well we uh, we talk about what's all involved and what to look for and experiences and and buying a motorcycle and um very relevant in my life right now because as most of you who are listeners of the show know that uh, i've had the uh, tzr250 up for sale for about a month now and we may be dealing with the last few days of the tzr in the duke household I'm going to have to move that a little bit, sorry, as we roam around in the garage here. I need to move something, so come Saturday, maybe the day where there is no two-stroke in the Duke residence for the first time in since 1996, 1996, I've had a two-stroke in my garage since 1996, so for 10 years, you've kind of heard, oops, hold on, let's do that again. Accompanied by something like, uh, well, along these lines, if I can do it. Oops. One more time. Hot. It's 85 degrees out, and you got to use a choke. What's up with that? The glory and the fury.
anyways, so Saturday uh, got a got a guy coming to look at the bike. Ouch! It helps when you put the side stand on your foot. Yeah, damn those bugs with the tail numbers. Yeah, one just dive bombed me. Ah, anyway, so went to uh, go start the bike yesterday and uh, battery's dead so I pull out the uh, little battery tender junior thing and it won't charge so I had to go buy a new battery today eh, not great bike's gone in two days and you gotta drop 50 some odd dollars by the time you pay tax and out the door for a new battery for a bike that's leaving in two days but I guess it wouldn't leave if it didn't run right there you go so where did I put my notes anyways with that uh, oh yes and uh, have another bike to purchase lined up let's see if this sells before we get the new one and if we do We'll let you in on that. So let's uh, let's get to the news here a little bit. Um, actually, most of my news that I have written down. Oops, that's. I do want to touch on that. Sorry, I'm just kind of scrolling through some notes. I saw a, a blurb about uh, Hopper after Lamar, and uh, he had always said that if he the the first time he got on a podium, he'd buy his crew a bunch of really nice watches. Well, he did. After the podium at Le Mans, he dropped about 38 large and bought his crew of nine mechanics some uh, some Breitlings. And those of you who aren't familiar with the high-end watch market, uh, Breitlings usually start at about four or five grand. So uh, the uh, beautiful watches, absolutely love them. Uh, driving down the highway, you might have seen an ad for them. They're usually uh, associated with airplanes and you know, things like that. So uh, I have a replica of a Breitling on uh, but the operative word is Breitling. 20 bucks in the Shanghai market. Uh, a buddy of mine who travels to China for business about three, four times a year picked it up for me a few years ago. It's cool. It's nice. But it's not a real. Uh, what's a, it's a Bentley Lamar replica one. Anyways. But I thought that was very, very cool of Hopper to, to do that. And, uh, you know, those guys put in a lot of work and a lot of hours. And it's really cool when a rider can show uh, show appreciation for the crew by by doing something like that. <laughs> I think the joke was uh, I saw, uh, you know, what happens when he w- wins a race and mechanics are all going to want Ferraris. But I don't know if he's going to be able to pull that off. But it would be uh, it'd be pretty funny. The uh, those of you who are kind of into the stick and ball sports might have seen this floating around either on your sports talk radio, uh, on the sportscast news, or maybe just read si.com. There is a uh, a list out on SI.com from this past week's issue, and it talks about the highest paid athletes in the world. Uh, first, it, the the first list was a list of fifty of the, of the um, top earning U.S. athletes, and uh, surprising absolutely no one, Tiger Woods is on top. Get this: twelve million in winnings, a hundred million dollars uh, in endorsement money. Uh, the only thing that was really more well, De La Hoya was fifty-five million, uh, fifty-three from uh, from fights and promotion, two million in endorsements. Phil Mickelson, the golfer, four point two million in earnings, forty-seven million in endorsements for Hefty. Holy Jesus! Um, and it runs down uh, the list. Break uh, the the only motorsports person in the top ten was Dale Jr. twenty seven point one million dollars, seven point one in salary and twenty million in endorsements. So, but uh, the reason I bring it up is is more for the U.S. athletes or for the international athletes. Hello, uh, 
with the retirement of Michael Schumacher, it's uh, moved around a little bit. But Fernando Alonso with the new contract to McLaren is the number one international uh, international person in on the list with $35 million. And basically, no, well, they didn't break out endorsement money versus salary, unfortunately, here. But I'm going to guess most of Alonzo's money is in salary, if I remember correctly. Uh, Ronaldinho, the uh, soccer player that plays for... Uh, Barcelona, I believe, is at $32.7 million. Roger Federer, the tennis player, 31.3. And the reason I even bring all this up, Valentino Rossi, 30 mil. These are all U.S. dollars. So most of the, you know, obviously, the international guys are paid in euros. So those numbers are slightly different for our overseas listeners. Uh, but you can uh, pull up your calculator. Uh, Cal, uh, currency calculators or converters, and and figure it out. But so, anyways, I just uh, for giggles here, I I um, I tried to do this. So, in the list of highest paid athletes in the world, um, I did this once before. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So Rossi is tenth overall, um, just behind LeBron James, who's five eight in salary and twenty five million in uh, endorsements and just in front of David Beckham who's at uh, 29.7 million in earnings. So, just it was kind of interesting. Uh, I thought it was I thought it was pretty interesting, but it's one of those things from just to put things in perspective of who makes money here. Um it's U.S. Tiger, De La Hoya, Mickelson, Shaq at 35, Kobe 33.7, LeBron 30.8, uh, Kevin Garnett 29, Derek Jeter at 29, Alex Rodriguez 28, and then like I said, Dale Jr. at 27.1. So, anyways, uh, I'm going to jump right into talking about the MotoGP race at um, uh, what's the word? The Shrine of Speed that is Mugello. Now, apparently, Eurosport had some, some other things going on that were being covered, so no, no free practice and no qualifying on, uh, on the Eurosport. At least if there was, it didn't get put up in the usual spots where I grabbed the feed. It was a bit distressed at that. However, someone did put up the uh, uh, BBCI feed, which was interesting because I'd never seen it. Now, here's the thing that's really, that really gets me. And and people in Britain that listen to the show in the UK, you guys have got it so good. I don't know if you guys get it. See, here's the thing. You guys have MotoGP on three channels, three feeds. And I suppose if you're in Ireland, I think the Irish have their own feed. So if you can get that feed, then you have four. Okay, four feeds for MotoGP. You've got... The Beeb, you got Eurosport, and then um, Sky. I'm guessing is is what the uh, the other fee is, and that's uh, the Nick Harris one. But the um, I'm not sure who's on the Irish one. Sorry, but the uh, BBC feed is Susie Perry, Matthew Roberts, who um, uh, Matthew uh, Matthew does the interviews uh, after the race, I believe. He speaks like 92 languages, which is damn impressive. Uh, Steve Parrish, and then they had Charlie, but I'm apologies, I forgot to look up who, what Charlie's last name was, and I don't think they even mentioned it in the show. So um, it was an interesting broadcast, not bad. Um, it was it was diff- it was it was still better than Nick Harris. I don't think it was up to the level of the Eurosport guys, in, in my opinion. Now, uh, this is also for for my people in the UK and actually all over Europe. 
I need uh, need your feedback, rumblestripradio at gmail.com here. So Susie Perry's on there, and I know a lot of people go gaga over Susie Perry. I mean, not so much. Um, you know, there's some... There's some stories that I've heard from multiple uh, multiple sources, multiple independent sources about how she got into the business. I don't really need to, we don't need to go into that and talk about it because then you get into the cattiness of it. But I do the remember, last time I saw Susie was 2002, I believe, the World Superbikes at Laguna. I saw her on TV, and she looks different, very different to me. Now, just out of curiosity, I'm not trying to get catty or go tabloid, you know, try to get tabloidy on anybody, but did she have a bunch of work done? I'm, I'm just curious, and, and, I, and I don't really care other than the fact that I just don't remember her looking like that. Um, either she had a lot of work done, my memory's getting really bad, or they've got some really good uh, hair and makeup people that the, uh, that the bee brings over for her. Anyways. Um... Things they talked about uh, during qualifying, which was, you know, the mon- well, qualifying was interesting because it was wet, then it dried, almost to the point where, where people were going to r- come in and either put intermediates, like maybe an intermediate front and a slick rear or something like that. And then just when everyone was just about to go do that, it poured rain again for not that long, five, eight minutes. Uh, and then at the very end, it was almost dried again. So a lot of heat in the track dried out quickly. Just It was a crazy, crazy qualifying session. Uh, here, here are the uh, some of the notes I have here. And then I'm going to jump in and out of some... Some rumors going around here, too. Um, Kawasaki, they've been talking about how they've uh, been tweaking the motor, and they supposedly have anywhere between three and six new, um, three and six more horsepower. They also uh, did some stuff with the bodywork to help them with the with the aero. Uh, Honda was uh, was working where they have uh, one or two more uh, kilometers on top speed. Now, supposedly they had a new fairing for Mugello, I pulled up some pictures. I didn't see any see anything that was like really stuck out at me. But when it comes to fairings, I'm not the best at the detail stuff like that. I I honestly miss stuff that it doesn't jump out, or isn't. I'm not gonna say super obvious, but it's if it's if it's a subtle difference, I tend not to notice it. I just I don't notice that quite. I don't notice that level of detail. Um, the one of the interesting things that I that I and maybe this has been floating around, but I, I'm not sure. Is that the Honda motor is turning some 2,500 to 3,000 less revs than the Ducati? So the Hondas are revving to about 17, 17.5, and the Ducatis are right at about 20,000 20, RPM. So if you're wondering where that extra top speed is, the uh, 14. Yeah, about 14 to 15K at Mugello in top speed. Well, there's a couple thousand RPM on the table, and, and I guarantee you, you're going to get a little more top speed if you spin it a little harder. Uh, I thought that was that was actually somewhat surprising that Honda's not spinning that thing harder because I, I think the 990 turned at least 17, 18 grand. So, uh, whatever. They had um, Matthew Roberts down on pit lane, and he grabbed Mick Dewan, who was hanging out for the weekend at there. And he uh, he had some interesting comments about what's going on. And 
you could say the theme for this race, at least when it came to the race, was return to normalcy, and, and we'll talk about why that is in a minute. Um, but he, he thought, Mick thought that Valley is racing as good or better than he ever has in his career uh, so far this year. That the bike seemed to be pretty good, but that Michelin had not stepped up to the challenge that Bridgestone had put down. Uh, they were so used to doing the way things... They were so used to the way they've been doing things for so long that now that this change came with the tire rules, uh, they haven't been able to adapt quickly to it. Now, uh, as we'll see in the, when it comes time for the race, maybe that's changed, maybe that hasn't. You know, one race does not a trend make. It's just, you know, a, a point of data. Um, what did I? Oh, with uh, with 28 minutes left in qualifying, the first seven people were on Bridgestones at eight of the top nine, and I think Valentino was the only one. Um, I think he, Valentino was eighth, if memory serves. He was the only Michelin in the in the top nine. And then, like I said, uh, just as the solid line started to form, it, it absolutely poured again. And um, then it dried out, and Casey Stoner sitting back, watching things, watching things, because he was sitting on uh, on the on the pole. <laughs> and I think you notice everyone's time is really starting to drop quickly. So he went out there, threw in a couple laps. They didn't better his pole time, but they were still um, those two two flying laps that he put in at the end of qualifying were still better than anyone else had done all all through qualifying. So he um, he did that, and I actually didn't write down qualifying because a lot of you guys have said, well, you know, we can look it up for qualifying. It's not too big a deal. But um, needless to say, uh, that uh, Casey Stoner was on pull and and can i say i've been thinking for a while that i need to get a new helmet and i i've you know since since i saw i mean i knew casey stone in the 250s and you know he's a good rider but last year when he debuted in moto gp and especially that first race at at uh, qatar uh, the way that he rode the 990 really like an old school 500 bike i was i was super impressed and you know became a fan of his immediately at that point and um Really, I mean, especially this year, really come to fruition. Last year, I mean, okay, yeah, he crashed a lot, but he was still fast on a second slash third line Honda, um, which I thought was damn impressive. So I need a new helmet, but you know, normally I just I'd like to get something my own and paint it up, but yeah, just not an option right now. So uh, thinking, okay, cool. Well, let's get a stoner helmet. You know, that's it's a, it's a kind of a cool looking helmet. You know, the other helmet that I really like is uh, Olivier Jacques. And so over the last three weeks to a month, I've been looking around to see if I could find either of those helmets for sale here in the United States. Turns out, you can't. You cannot buy a stoner, a current stoner replica. You can buy like a three or four year old stoner replica model. But not the current Nolan N94 uh, stoner edition helmet. Uh, first off, the N94 is not a model carried in the United States right now, um, so therefore you can't get the, the stoner replica helmet. So I'm like, ah, balls. So I start looking at the shark helmets. Now, the shark helmets are supposed to be pretty good, um, a little more expensive than I want to spend, just because I don't have the money to spend. Yes, I do believe you need to put a good helmet on your head because that's, you know, anyways. So I started getting irritated that I couldn't find the shark helmet, a Jacques uh, replica shark helmet. I'm like, well, okay, I can, I could maybe understand that a little bit because what's going to be the market in the United States for a French rider's helmet? Okay, so then I, uh, I pulled up the sharks website and then looked for the in um, on the British side of it, 
and uh, even the Brits can't get a replica. And I forgot if I even looked at the the French part of it, and they didn't have it either. So uh, apparently, there's just no Jacques replica shark helmet, which is a bummer. Because in my mind, uh, to me, Olivier Jacques has pretty much the best helmet uh, of current MotoGP riders. Um, Barros is as cool. There's a few others that have some some kind of cool stuff. Uh, the third helmet that I would get is a Rubens House helmet, but they don't sell Premier helmets in the United States at all. And, okay, a couple of you are saying, well, order it from overseas and get it shipped. Well, with the way the uh, the U.S. dollar is right now compared to the euro or the pound, forget about it. <laughs> it's going to cost me about 600 bucks by the time I pay shipping and everything, and I'm just... Um, yeah, not. If I'm gonna pay 600 bucks for a helmet, I'll have my own. Uh, I'll, I'll send it out to uh, TC's Custom Graphics out in California and have Tom Cunningham uh, paint me up a uh, helmet like he did in the past. Okay, that this week's picture. For the, uh, I'll, I'll I'll put up my old awry that uh, that Tom did. Um, anyways. All right, so this is my fault because I've uh, I put. Uh, New, I put notes in here after after qualifying, so we're going to sort of skip back up to news here. Um, McWilliams uh, supposedly is going to ride the Ilmore bike at the Goodwood Festival. Eh, it's a parade up the hill, no big deal. Now, there are a lot of rumors circulating about what's going to happen to Jorge Lorenzo next year. There's two or three different paths that he could take. It's... I guess it's pretty much assumed or known that he's going to end up on a Yamaha next year. Now the question is where, what team, how, how is that going to work? The reason I say that is this. Valentino Rossi and Jorge Lorenzo, I, I don't know, they don't get along, but Valley wants nothing to do with them. He, he basically is not going to allow him to be on his team. So this brings up a couple different paths. Um, one theory floating around right now is that Jorge is uh, that Valley will have his own separate one rider team, kind of like he did at Honda when he ran, you know, the quote unquote Nastro as Nastro Zero team um, when he was breaking, you know, when he came in. Yeah, when he first came in, that was the Nastro Zero. It was sort of a one rider team with uh, him and, and Jeremy and, and his crew. That is a definite possibility given the fact that. Valley would probably take fiat money with him since he and um, basically the guy who owns the family that owns fiat, um, the guy who's taking over the running the company is like a 35 year old guy, and he and Valley are buddies. So trust me when I say the fiat money would go with him. So it'd be like the Fiat Amatra Yamaha. And if those of you who don't know, Amatra is Valentino's company and sunglasses and um, t-shirts and a bunch of other stuff. Anyways. So that's one, and then so if Valley goes off on his own team, then you know the quote-unquote official team would be Jorge, and who knows? Um, potentially uh, Sylvan Gintily, to be honest with you. Now you've got the Tectois team, and the reason I would, you know, first I thought, well, maybe they'd slide him over to Tectois, but then Tectois would have to get different tires because Jorge's not going to run on Dunlops. But Dunlop is pretty much funding that team, so there's you know that that's that's a little bit incompatible there. So to think that uh, Jorge would end up over Tactois, the more I think about it, not so much. Where does Colin end up, or as the, uh, some of you like to call him, Colleen? 
It does crack me up, even though I'm a Colin fan. Uh, who knows he whether or not he will be? You know, he's on a one-year deal, so whether he sticks around in MotoGP next year or not is is sort of up for question mark. Uh, memory serves, Corsair is on a one-year deal with Yamaha Superbike, so Yamaha could say, well, you know what, we're not going to retain you for MotoGP, but we'll slide you in as, as a teammate to Haga. That would work out well because Haga and uh, Edwards have been teammates in the past. They won the eight-hour together, and, and Colin, I think, could, could kick some ass back on a Superbike, which that could be cool. But I think, you know, who knows what Colin wants to do at this point uh, or what his options are. Now, the thing with Colin, why would he not go to Tectois? Well, he's pretty much a Michelin man. He's, um, since he since he came uh, from the U.S. overseas, he's, I think, exclusively been on Michelin tires. Uh, 2002 was the last year in World Superbike. 2003 was the first year for the Pirelli Control Tires, and that's when he moved uh, over to MotoGP with the Aprilia, and he was responsible for bringing for uh, Aprilia having frontline Michelin tires. That's kind of how he got that ride. So, um, so where will Colin end up? Who knows? If he can hang on for one more year in MotoGP, um, depending on what he has, of, you know, how his relationships with Aprilia, he might then go back to Aprilia and ride the Superbike, which unfortunately sounds like it won't be out till '09 rather than '08. So. Another that's an, that's a topic for another time. Uh, the whole Kevin Schwantz thing. Uh, I think we talked a little. Did we talk a little bit about that? No, I don't think we talked about that last. Yeah, we did. We talked a little bit about that last time, where Schwantz um, is involved. Uh, we're trying to get with a Suzuki potential Suzuki deal with. Um, with Spees and supposedly bringing a sponsor from the U.S. based out of uh, based out of Austin. One more thing to add to that, and uh, thanks to John Hall from uh, uh, Live Fast Racing, the LiveFastRacing.com blog, uh, for this piece of information, and that is Kevin Schwantz actually has a personal uh, PSC or personal service contract with Michelin. So if he's going to be involved in the team with Suzuki, that Suzuki team will be running Michelin's now. You know, some people say, well, okay, so that means it wouldn't be the factory Suzuki guys because those guys are heavily invested with Bridgestone. Now, Suzuki with two different tire manufacturers? Sure, Yamaha's doing it, uh, and Honda does it, so no big deal there. Where I see this going, I think, is that there are also some rumors which may or may not be out by the time that uh, are officially announced by the time you hear this because we're recording it so late and uh, Catalonia is starting in yeah four hours probably for uh, first practice for one for one two fives and because I believe this is supposed to be announced this weekend um, at the at the, um, the Catalonia uh, uh, GP that Aspar is going to step up. Supposedly with Suzuki and run a MotoGP team, so they'll have one two five two fifty with Aprilia, and then they'll have a MotoGP team with Suzuki, and it was supposedly going to be a one bike deal. What I'm thinking, and that makes sense, is then that um, Aspar would run two bikes. It would be a joint deal between uh, uh, Jorge Martinez Aspar and Kevin Schwantz involved somehow. Uh, Schwantz would bring Michelin tires, bring a second rider, and bring some sponsorship to go along with that. Um, obviously, you Spanish. They got the the whole Spanish contingency that they can bring for sponsorship there, and now Aspar has a uh, the whole field one two one two five two fifty MotoGP for bringing right for bringing talent up. Suzuki can see that as as a big benefit because now they've got a a pipeline to MotoGP for other talent. 
having Schwantz involved, another high profile, bringing tires, um, 125, 250, it's all Dunlop stuff, so there's no, con- no in a sense, conflict there. I, I don't think that they would run Dunlop tires in MotoGP. Uh, it's just given, given how good or not so good they are on the Tectois team, hard to say. I don't know. Rumors still persist. I, I see, saw someone today saying something about Tenkata. That's trust me, Tenkata's not coming into the fold. That's it's just not going to happen. Their whole their whole reason for being is based around production bikes of Super Sport and Superbike. They they have the main dealership in um, the Netherlands. I believe yeah, they're from the Netherlands, right? So that's their whole deal is uh, taking Hondas, six hundreds and thousands. Um, Racing them, they've got a ton of uh, aftermarket parts that you can buy to, you know, to go racing with or hop up your street bike with. So, what's their reason for being in MotoGP? Don't really see one. They just I, there's no connection there. There's no business connection there. And these guys seem like some pretty sharp business guys. Um, All Star. I'm sorry. That's 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 also a not gonna happen. dot com uh, event. Francis Bada's making a lot of noise. Okay, this is, again, my take on this whole deal, um, in my opinion, the way that I'm reading the tea leaves. Bada is not happy about Ducati's getting special treatment. Why? I don't know, because Ducati's have always gotten special treatment. Why he's shocked, surprised, or even irritated at this point, don't know. So he's making the noise because the... Title sponsor for the series is all, and the is also his obviously main sponsor being Corona. Uh, he's tight with the Corona boys. They have been for 12, 10, 12 years at least. Thinking back to well, maybe not that far uh, to the late nineties. Anyways, um, I'm thinking of standing in, in pit lane in like ninety nine or two thousand at Laguna, and I think there were the Corona Corona bikes even then. He has a long and deep relationship with these guys, in other words. So his threat is do things my way or I'm going to take, you know, in a sense, take the ball and go home. I'm going to take Corona as a title sponsor, Corona as sponsor for these bikes, and I'm going to go to MotoGP. Well, if he does that, who's going to ride for him? It won't be Max Biaggi because Biaggi has come out and said he really enjoys racing super bikes. And I'm not sure if it's the actual super bike itself um, I think it's more the the paddock and the atmosphere, and it's just uh, it's it's more of a family type of thing. I mean, everyone's out there super hardcore competitive, cut your throat to win. But I don't think there's the pettiness and cattiness in the world superbike paddock that there is in MotoGP. And I think Max really likes that, especially uh, at this stage of his career. He's, what, 35, 36 years old. I think he wants to go out and be competitive, or, you know, try and, you know, try and race for wins and championships. In Superbike, he can do that. In MotoGP, eh, not so much, especially with the breakout in, in way the uh, performance of bikes and things like that. Hard to say. So who would Bata get as his two, two riders? Well, I guess you could say that Schwanz could come in with Spees and then, you know, they'd find someone else from two, either 250s or some, bring someone in from Japan. Um, who knows? Uh, hard to say. I'm just going to say you're not going to see All-Star in MotoGP. And that's, ah, crap, my citronella candles blew out. So hopefully I'm not going to get dive-bombed here. My take on that whole deal. Um, yeah. 
the uh, the KR team obviously uh, Curtis was on there for last week for Mugello. He's on this week for Catalonia, and then they go to Donington after that, right? I think that's the next race after that. Um, Curtis won't be on there, but uh, supposedly it's a done deal that Jonathan Rea, who's a who races in the British Superbike Series for Honda on Michelin's, um, is going to get the get a ride. I'm sure Honda, Michelin, and um, Dorna are going to kick in some money for that because it is ultra important for a Brit to be on the grid for the. British GP with all the money that the Beeb and, and everyone else has thrown at you know that, that they've paid Dorna so a uh, little kickback from from Dorna to, to fund that deal. Curtis, eh, you know how did he do? Not so much. First time really on that bike. The bike isn't all there, but supposedly just Curtis being on the bike for the weekend where they were able to compare notes in the sense of, hey, at this point I'm feeling this. Are you feeling this? And then, yes, okay. Yeah, different take on stuff, or at least confirming stuff. They, you know, according to Chuck Axler during the race, they got some ideas of the direction they want to go. I guess the Honda guys have looked at the data and have said that they don't believe they're too far off; that they're pretty close. So maybe it's a few tweaks and and, and some stuff to the chassis, and and that will solve it. And they're down on on top speed, but that might be. Uh, I'm almost positive that is a direct correlation to the fact that the chassis isn't handling well they can't keep up the corner speed and also aren't getting traction for drive so that would obviously affect top speed do to do what else we got here oh the other the other piece of news is it is a it is a done deal that um, uh, Mugello was the last 250 race for Anthony West because he is now the full-time rider for the Yamaha Germany uh, Supersport effort, uh, Kevin Curtin is uh, is done for the year. Uh, collarbone's taking some time to heal, and as we said before, they got to go in and redo the surgery uh, for the puncture wound on his thigh. We're not going to go into details for that, but uh, uh, good on Anthony for for getting that gig. Uh, hopefully, he will be up near uh, the front for the rest of the year, and he can parlay that into into a, a quality ride for himself. You know, he's been known as a, as a whiner and complainer and a lot of talent, never produced. He's now of an age and hopefully a maturity where we're going we're gonna to see that. That being said, he once again was pretty much the top uh, privateer in, in 250s for Mugello. So when we actually get to the Mugello race, we'll talk about the 125s first. Um, I actually went back. Part of this, I, had, I went back and watched, rewatched the MotoGP race. Actually, just before we, I recorded this, one two five and two fifty. I watched uh, last night. Actually, the first time I had a chance to do it. Um, their qual one two five and two fifty. Both of them are qualifying. Was going to be messed up. I'm just reading off my notes here. So, um, the lead group was. Um, it was one two five. Was a classic one two five race. It was just a gaggle of guys. Back and forth, first to seventh, you know, six outbreaks, now they're into second. Huge drafting battles, poking big holes in there. Um, but for for a good portion of the, well, first at least half of the race, there's a big gaggle of about ten guys up front. Um, obviously, as it as it dwindled down, as the laps went on and dwindled down towards the end, that, that thinned out a little bit. Um, <laughs> Matteo Pasini is having a year so bad that... He, <laughs> 
to steal a line from, I, I, I think it was, I don't remember if it was Toby or Julian, I don't know that they were referring to him specifically, but the, I, I just one of the one of the couple lines I remembered from the race weekend was, uh, you know, uh, Pacini's having a a year as such. You better keep the uh, the belt and the shoestrings away from him. And, and really, is that has gone that bad? He was leading the race off and on in the lead group, and then like two lap, two three laps to go, he just fell away the hell back and um, in uh, well six uh, six spot. I got the results back here somewhere. Um, Peshik was uh, having a pretty good, pretty good race at times. Didn't get a great start. Was up in the gaggle. Um, towards the last, he he got he fell back from the lead four. Was he riding with Bradley Smith the last couple laps? I think. Um, but anyways, he ended up crashing in the last last corner. I think on the last corner of the last lap. So that was uh, pretty bad for him. But. Uh, as they came across the line, first to fourth was was a tenth of a second. So that was, I mean, it was pretty much like that the entire race. So that was that's what, like I said, I thought it was a, a really really good race. Um, oops, too far. Here we go, one two five. So your your uh, final was uh, uh, Hector Faubel, uh, Gadea, and Corsi was the podium. Then Telmashi, uh, Tommy Koyama, and then Pasini finished sixth. Okay. And then the points in 125, Falbell at 102, Talmashi 95, Peshik 91, obviously cost himself uh, the championship lead with that crash. Uh, Corsi with 71, and then Gadea with 66. Um, the 250 race, again, qualifying messed up. And the controversy there is that pretty much anyone uh, under, what, 18th or 18th, you know, 18th and on in qualifying didn't meet the percentage cutoff rule for qualifying and that happened in 125 as well one or two riders in moto gp i believe also got caught up so basically race direction said look qualifying screwed up everyone's in which yeah okay i guess it followed in some ways it followed the spirit of the law not necessarily the letter of the law letter of the law said well you didn't get in this one you're out spirit of the law as uh, toby and julian quite quite uh, correctly said in the 250 race is to keep well they said people like them people like me from getting a 250 or 125 and going out and try to race even in my even in my day of being in good you know really good shape and whatever top form i was ever at there's no way in hell i would ever qualified for a race in the rain, well, that's a different story. You know, it's all up for grabs. But you get the idea. They're just trying to keep some punter, as they say, some punter uh, from from trying to get in. Understand that. So, like I said, they followed the spirit of the law, not necessarily the letter of the law. And at the end of the day, it was probably the right call, even though a lot of people were upset with it. But that's uh, so go the politics of, of the uh, MotoGP series. So uh, the reason this is all uh, a big controversy is because Jorge Lorenzo had was doing for crap. He ended up in 20th spot, and had they followed the letter of the law, Jorge Lorenzo, the championship leader, would not have made the race. So that's why I say the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law says Jorge's good enough to be racing up front. Obviously, uh, let him in, and, and they let everyone else in. The uh, the pole was won by uh, by Bautista. So and that was his first pole in 250. So that was uh, good on him, and, and uh, obviously 
qualifying being what it was. Roberto Locatelli did take the grid and made a few laps. I believe he pulled in somewhat early as he's still uh, among the walking wounded. Lap two... Yeah, lap two. Now, here's what I'm not sure about. Uh, as they came around the last bend, and no, that's not San Donato. I can't write. thought I had all the corners memorized for the names, but uh, no, San Donato's the first turn. Whatever. Anyways, not that important. I'll leave that to uh, to Bob Hayes at MotoG- MotoGPOD to break down corner for corner what they all are. Just Bob likes to get technical, super technical. I like to get occasionally technical. Um, so anyways, Mika Calio comes around the last corner, and I'm not sure if he got a bad drive, was slowing because something was wrong with the bike or whatever, But so Jorge comes up right behind him and ass ends, almost ass ends him. What he did do, though, was his front tire clipped Calio's uh, uh, exhaust can on the left side of the bike, and it went flying up in the air. And then Calio made it about halfway up the straight and parked it against the, the, the pit wall there. So I wasn't sure whether something else was wrong. I don't think that uh, anyone else really said, or at least what I listened to, um, you know, what the issue was, if that was the issue or something else had broken. On a 250, you really wouldn't race without the exhaust can because the way the pipes are and everything, it's the whole tune length. It's it, If you take off the can, it will screw things up. You probably seize a motor. Um, so whether something was wrong and he parked it, he was going to park it even before that happened, or because he lost the can, he just parked it because he knew he was going to seize it up relatively quickly. Uh, I don't know and um, didn't really see anything to say one way or the other. Um, just a bad year for KTM. They are having absolutely no luck that... Uh, for a team that you thought would have been running for a championship, it just uh, yeah, no luck for that team this year. And I'm not sure if every they they stayed uh, the same, and everyone else accelerated, or if they tried to make that next step, and it just hasn't worked out. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Hector Barber had a really bad start, uh, but was challenging for the lead uh, by lap eight. And yeah, where did he end up? He was. He was yeah he was he was like twelfth or fifteenth on the first lap or something something crazy like that. Um, so then he and Bautista started started having having their battle. Uh, Jorge, starting from twentieth, made uh, made actually a, a decent start uh, and was charging up. I think he passed like five people on the outside of, of turn one there, and this was picking them off little by little. And um, what do I have here with about eleven laps to go. Uh, he actually uh, took the lead, so he was he was on the charge and getting ready to, you know, at that point getting ready to plant, plant the uh, Lorenzo's land uh, uh, flag, probably over in the Valentino Rossi corner, just on general principle. Didn't quite work out for him though. Batista fought him back, and got back into the lead. They went back and forth with a um, couple, what about two laps to go? I guess that was two, three laps to go. Sorry, I didn't write down the lap number on that one. I apologize. Um, uh, Bautista had fallen back. He's making a charge through... Nope, they were through the Arabiadas, wherever that was. Um, Bautista made, a, made a, uh, a hard move, but a fair move. On the initial, uh, the initial camera shot, it looked like... Uh, how did it go? Lorenzo's... Uh, Lorenzo's tire touched 
Bautista's knee puck, right? Or is it vice versa? No, Bautista's, yeah, whatever. Anyways, Lorenzo ran wide, through that corner, out onto the AstroTurf, which was still wet, and then he lost it, fell down. He picked the bike back up, um, obviously highly pissed, but there was such a big gap there, he was able to remount and still still finish uh, eighth. So that was that was good. He did salvage some, some good points. As they, um, as they pushed on the last lap or so, uh, Bautista was right, uh, right with DeAngelis, and then... Uh, Strong move on the last corner, pretty much a drag race up the main straight, and, and Bautista just nipped DeAngelis uh, at the line. I think there was uh, around less than a tenth, 0.22, that sticks in my head is, is the gap, so not even half a bike length. And then there was a gap to third and fourth, and uh, Hector Barber, who had, a, had a, also had a strong race, just nipped uh, Davizioso at the line by about the same amount. That was literally a drag race, and... Uh, Davizioso on the Honda, they are, mm, theme, Honda down on power, MotoGP, 250, 125. Okay, anyways, um, so the 250 race was, was was a pretty solid race. I thought it was a, a very entertaining race. Uh, anyways, uh, so Bautista, DeAngelis, Barbara, Davizioso, Thomas Luthi, Shui Oyama, uh, Julian or Julian Simone, and then uh, Jorge, your points, um, George up on top with 128, Davizioso 101, DeAngelis 95, uh, Bautista with 89, and Hector Barbara with 63. And I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but if memory serves, I think I did pick Bautista to win. So good on me. There is also, I, I want to say uh, for Bautista, there's a lot of talk of who's going to be the star in MotoGP once. Uh, you know the face of MotoGP, the outgoing personality of MotoGP. Once uh, Valentino Rossi's gone, and in my mind, as I look down there, it's certainly not going to be Jorge, uh, but I do think it is going to be Alvaro Bautista. He's got uh, the boy next door. He's got the big smile. Um, he speaks okay English right now, which is good considering half the world, you know, speaks some form of English. Obviously, he's going to speak Spanish, which. Another third of the world speaks, and I think well, the rest either speak Indian or Chinese, right? Or some form of, form of those two languages. Anyways. Um, so as we look down, Bautista, another, he'll be there this year and probably one more year in 250, and then he'll probably look to move up to, uh, to MotoGP. And I think he can be the person that replaces Rossi. I, just, I think he's got the, the talent and the personality to, um, to do that. Uh, the MotoGP race. So let me flip my notes here. AMA. We'll talk about the AMA. Well, some. Probably not as much as I should, but we are... Wow, we're 50 minutes into this thing already, and I still got a lot to go. So, uh, MotoGP, Quali. We talked a little bit about... Yeah, we talked about Quali up there. Just It was a mess, and um, no need to rehash that. Come the actual race... Uh, Stoner and Vermeulen uh, looked like they were going to try and gap the field immediately in lap one. That's not going to work out. Rossi had a bad start. Um, Dupunier went out early. Very strong rumors that uh, Dupunier is not going to be back with Kawasaki next year. I um, think he's racing this week, although I think he got banged up pretty good, but I'm pretty sure both uh, both Kawasaki guys are, are going to be racing. Um they're both beat up pretty good, but eh, there it is. The uh, oh, I'm sorry. The other note about the Suzuki is we talked a little bit about how they've um, there's been rumors or not rumors, but it's basically been known that uh, 
they came out with a evolution of the engine that they've had. Um, supposedly, it is a a Big Bang engine or whatever, a very tight firing order. So, however, that's going to work out on a four-stroke. Um, I do want to say that, and this goes to the conversation, the conversation I had with Liam a week and a half ago. That uh, you know, he said the season and and, and breaks basically down neatly because there's uh, 18 races, so three different six race sections, and they're sort of in the middle section. The first race, the first group of six races, you know, everything's new, everything's fresh, everyone's energized, um, the equipment's new, but it's shaking out, and there's still some development uh, going on. The second part of the season, the second third of the season is where everything really starts to, in a sense, gel or fall apart. Uh, usually, take your pick. Uh, the teams are in a groove. It becomes a bit of a grind at this point. Um, you know, you can go up and down based on a lot of different stuff. But that, uh, but now we're into the section where they've taken all the data from the first third of the season, and now you're starting to see the evolution of the bike now as we get to the second set. Mugello typically is the race where um, new parts are seen. So, like I said, supposedly Honda had... Uh, had the new fairing, whoopee. Um, Suzuki's obviously worked on their engine. Yamaha apparently had one or two tweaks. So the big advantage that Ducati had at the beginning of the season, we're seeing that shrink because the Japanese, or at least Honda and Yamaha, and, and, and to a good extent Suzuki now, have got the got everything geared up and now they're starting to test and tune. So it's not so much that Ducati's falling back uh, with the results that happen in, in the race, I think it's more an evolution, or it's more that the Japanese have taken that step to to catch up. Uh, and if they haven't, you know, I'm not going to say they passed, I'd say they're, I don't even know that they're right there, but they're very close, okay? So that's, um, the question is now, what's Ducati going to do now that we're in the meat of the season? They need to see, some parts evolution. Apparently, Caparossi, I said last week he was getting a new chassis. I was wrong. It's a, he had a different tune on the motor where it was more more torque to it. And I'm going to say that that he may be more comfortable on it. Not working out so well for him, you know. Not so much on that. Good for a couple laps. Not on the long run, at least at Mugello, based on based on the results. Um, so we had a we had a group of about uh, eight nine eight nine riders, and for for the first four five maybe even six laps, it looked a little bit like a one two five race. Everyone you know lead group kind of strung out, a little battling back and forth, some passing going on. But the MotoGP actually looked like a a, two, a one two five race, and and I can hear Ray uh, Ray from uh, Knee Dragon sitting there going, "See, it's, an, it's a processional inline race, one line through the corners. That's all there is." But it, it got a little better. But uh, what we got uh, eight eight laps in, and they started to started to break it apart, break apart. Um, Caparossi and Melandri after a really good start for both riders up up in the first couple three four bikes, and Caparossi actually led for a couple corners. Um, they both of those guys started going backwards in a hurry. Uh, Rossi bad start. He's charging up Rossi into the lead. So with that, uh, once Rossi was in the lead. Rossi went into Rossi mode, which is uh, steady and uh, and chip away at the lap times and, and try to get a gap. Didn't quite break away as fast as he wanted because the Hobbit was right there on him. 
for actually told really about three laps to go, and that's really when the gap, well, maybe five laps to go, and, then, and that's really started to get a second, second plus gap. The um, the other part that was really fun to watch was uh, Stoner and Barros, and um, I'm gonna do a little editing here because I can't do it obviously on the fly, but I, I did get a bit of audio from about a little two minute piece of audio from from the race, and it's Julian. Um, uh, Toby and Randy talking about this battle for third spot and the final rostrum spot between Stoner on the factory Ducati and Barros on the on the Pramac Ducati and the politics involved in that. So let's uh, let's have a listen to that. It's it's actually it's it's pretty good. There's some there's a one funny there's a couple funny lines in here. Five laps remaining. Leader Rossi, second Pedroza. Uh, will Alex Barros beat Casey Stoner in the race, but let him get third position? He's a wise old owl, Barros. He's a wise old owl. He will know the way the cookie crumbles crumble up the road in Jakarta. Would you go back to Luis Dantin and say, well, I just gave a rostrum away? You must be joking. You'd be up against a wall. There'd be some bad guys with yep. blow torches and pliers around. Yep. And you would have a 150 horsepower bike for the rest of the season from Bologna. Dilemma. I don't think it is. <laughs> Nowadays, Toby, riders work for teams, not factories. Oh, we shall see. There's all sorts of politics down there. Yeah. I, I, I look forward to it. What do you reckon, Randy? About? Will Barros pass Stoner? I think so. Okay. I think it's too early in the season to be saying, hey, what about points and uh, and so on. Obviously, we don't know the inside facts. We do know that there's a couple of good engineers inside the uh, Dantine Ducati garage now, and obviously that's helped a lot of matters uh, with the situation of the team that we've seen in the past. Uh, you know, Casey's not going to give up whatsoever. Barrows... Barrel seems to get a better drive, and then Casey seems to be able to run it into the corner, carrying the corner speed. So, two different complete rider styles, and obviously Barrel's being... How many Grand Prix has he been in? A million. Yeah. <laughs> a million, too. If you were Alex Barros in your 264th Grand Prix, that is the correct number, folks. How many more years are you going to be here? How many more chances are Rostrum they're going to be? There is no other chance. It's today. That's what you're looking at. It's today, and, and those decisions, it wasn't like, oh, what would I do if this happens? Now he's involved in it, and believe me, if he gets a chance, he's going to go by. Over the line we come, three laps remaining, just under 10 miles in this Italian Grand Prix. Barros nearly half-wheeling in, but he's got the inside line to San Donato, and Casey Stoner gets past. One of the youngest gets past by one of the oldest. I think the youngest and the oldest, Toby. I don't think you need to qualify that statement. And Alex Barros with that history and wanting. 5, 250, 50cc, 80. He's always, always been a demon on the brakes, hasn't he? Oh, yes, and he's always had a fast motorcycle. Bear in mind that the speed trap is over the crest towards turn one, not at the start-finish line. Barros continuing to do over 311 kilometres an hour. That is about seven mile an hour quicker than Rossi over the line. But Rossi... So, like I said, uh, the the analysis by those guys to me always adds something. Sometimes it's humor, sometimes it's a technical thing. It's it's they're the best duo, and with Randy, a trio in uh, doing MotoGP. Uh, just before that, they had Neil Spalding, who's a technical writer, and and we've talked about him before. 
Uh, he made a really good point. The one thing that Yamaha has really, really been working on is acceleration on their bikes. Not so much the top speed, because uh, the Yamahas might be the slowest top speed as far as, you know, quote-unquote, the factory, the official factory bikes, not in the, say, the second, you know, Tectois. Actually, Gintily had a faster top speed than Rossi. Um, so how's that for you? By like 3K, 3 or 4K. Uh, Rossi had one of the lowest top speeds, if not the lowest top speed of the of the weekend. Um, but what they've been working on is off the corner, on the gas, accelerating hard. And supposedly Yamaha has the hardest accelerating bike in the paddock. And that's why Valentino was able to do what he was able to do. Not only is the bike maneuverable, but it fires off the corner much, much quicker. So that was interesting observation by uh, by Neil Spaulding. And, and um, I'm going to... One of those things I really want to start paying attention to. Um, I, I think I even said something about that in China. It looked like the, it wasn't so much that the Ducati had, um, well, actually, at China, the Ducati did have acceleration and top speed uh, coming off the corner. Valentino wasn't, was, was close, but really at the, at the top end of the rev range, that's where you saw, especially with the extra, uh, I'm not sure how tight Yamaha's turning their motors, but you really saw in the top speed with it uh, at China here. Long straight, not so much the long straight good one, um, but some you know flowing track, able to get on the corner, off the gas, on the gas, whatever. But anyway, so we'll get to that. Uh, yeah, so with uh, with that, and then uh, come come across the stripe. Very comfortable victory for um, for Rossi with uh, with the Hobbit in second, Barros in uh, on a podium, and and you saw the Dantine team as excited as they were their fourth. Uh, at Turkey, they were they were excited and disappointed at the same time because they just missed the podium. Here, they got the podium, and they know they were they 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 thought and they felt that they were good for a couple podiums this year. Could they challenge for a race win? Hard to say with Barros. The possibility is always there, but they felt confident that they could get a podium, and they really fulfilled that potential. And um, you know, I, I think Ducati's happy in in that uh, you know customer bike is on the podium and beat. The, the factory bike in a straight, you know, heads, you know, fair heads up race. So Ducati was happy because Ducati finished on the podium. Premek, the main sponsor for that, for the Dantines team was happy because they're an Italian company and they're on the podium in, in a sense of their home race. So huge. I mean, those guys, apparently they were still celebrating as of Tuesday, um, having a big team dinner in, in Barcelona or just north of Barcelona. So let's see. Here we go. Where is it? So Rossi, Hobbit. Otto Stoner, um, Hopkins, so not a bad run. He was running up front there and just not quite enough. Um, then uh, Elias, Caparossi, Vermeulen. I was looking for better things for Chris from, from that race. Melandry, way back. Nikki, brutal race. Um, DeHoff, and then Colin, or as some of you like to call him in uh, emails to me, Colleen. Your points... Stoner still on top with uh, 115 uh, to 106 to to Valley, so lost a decent chunk of points there. Uh, Hobbit is in third point in uh, third uh, place with 82. Melandry in fourth with 68. Uh, Vermeulen with 63. Hopper with uh, 59, and then uh, Caparex with with 47. I'm sorry. One other thing I want to add about the whole. Davizioso coming to MotoGP next year on uh, on a Yamaha. The other thing is that Davizioso personally is not necessarily well liked by anyone in there, and his manager may be even more hated than Alberto Puig. Um, Danny Armentrader is the uh, gentleman's name, and 
Yeah, I guess it's a pretty good, uh, pretty good measure of, of you know who is who's the more despised manager in the in the paddock. Is it Alberto or is it Danny? So Danny uh, Armentrader. Yeah, I'm sorry, just one of those little bits of gossip that I thought I'd, I'd pass along. How are we doing here? Oh, we're at an hour, so okay. Let's uh, let's jump to. Oh, I'm sorry. One last point I wanted to make on um, on Moto G, on the Moto GP stuff, and it has to do. We talked a little bit about this uh, back in February, March, about rider weights, especially on the 800s. Now, I was looking at tops, the ultimate top speed of the Hondas. And they're, they were about the same. Nikki and, and Danny were basically about the same. So why is Nikki finishing, you know, tenth and Danny's up front? Why does Danny seem to have more top speed? Well, I think what it's kind of coming down to is is literally is the weight. Uh, Danny is eighteen kilos lighter than Nikki, so basically forty five pounds, if my math is is close. Now think about this: three kilos equals one horsepower. So if the bikes are dead even, let's just say that they are essentially the same bike, the same motor, the same chassis, whatever. By virtue of his weight, Pedrosa has around six more horsepower than Nicky. Here's the weight. Here's some of the weights. Uh, looks like Alex Hoffman is the heaviest rider in the paddock at 74 kilos. Hopper's at 72. Barros is at 70. Actually, quite a few riders at 70. Uh, Nicky is 69, appropriately. Um, Rossi is 67 kilos. Casey Stoner is 58. He's like the next smallest guy. So, and then uh, you've got the Hobbit at, at 51. So, uh, Danny even has uh, seven ki- eight kilos on um, yeah seven kilos on on Casey Stoner. So, I think you really see it. You really see it to me at the end of a straight acceleration a little bit. Um, I think that's where I think because he's lighter. Once he once he uh, fires the gas or opens the gas and fires it out of the corner, that less weight. Uh, you know, the- a theoretical few more horsepower because of the weight. And I think that's part of the gap between part of it. Not it's not responsible for the whole thing, but I think it's responsible for somewhere between a third and a half of, of the difference between Danny and and. Um, and Nikki, and and why Danny on a Honda seems to be able to run up front when, with a couple exceptions, few others are. So, anyways, um, let's go to the AMA at Elkhart Lake, one of my absolute absolute favorite tracks in the United States. I've never had a chance to circulate on it, but as far as going to it, the the layout of the track, uh, the area of the track, you know, just it's it's beautiful. They obviously uh, took down the Billy Mitchell Bridge over the winter, put the tunnel in. And with that, uh, a huge difference as far as safety. Um, the weather was was shaky. Sat- Saturday was a good day. Sunday, not so much. Um, I'm sorry. The other thing I want to say is, as much as I talk about going to Barber for a World Superbike race, or they always talk about MotoGP. I'm sorry. Any World uh, World Superbike race. MotoGP event that you know. Okay, we won't talk about going to India and having two hundred thousand empty stands, um, and a shitty track layout. Uh, Road America is a perfect course for World Superbike and for MotoGP. And with the with the Billy Mitchell Bridge gone, there should be no more safety issues. There's memory pretty much plenty of runoff room. They've got the uh, the little chicane in the back. Um, 
to deal with uh, you know with the bad area going into Canada Corner was. From a safety standpoint, it should be good. Uh, I believe it's hardwired all around now for cameras. Literally, the only thing it doesn't have is permanent garages. But guess what? Barber doesn't have permanent garages. Um, the area around Elkhart Lake, I think, can absorb a World Superbike race. Barber is in Birmingham. It's a semi, you know, major city in Alabama. Actually, it is the major city in Alabama. Um, I think they could equally absorb the the crowd. Hard to say, but I, I, I would rather see it happen at, uh, at Road America. Anyways, uh, Freddie Spencer went, uh, Freddie Spencer, he called Mark Jung, Mark Jongi. So, anyways, that was a typical Freddie thing. And finally, I get people on the Weira board chiming in about Freddie, Freddie's ability on a, on a microphone there. So, uh, let's see, what do we have here for results? Saturday's race was, um, Oh, not so much. Well, there was a bit of a Maladin beat down. Maladin, um, well, I would. I guess I should have sent a note to Larry Lawrence on this, but I think this was the first Yoshimura sweep of a podium since uh, Road Atlanta back in 2000, 2000 or 2001 when, when Hacking was on the Yoshimura team. So it was, um, was uh, Maladin, Spees, and Tommy, unfortunately, Aaron looked like he was going to get on the podium and then crashed with, what, two laps left there in, in turn five. Just basically just tucked the front there. Uh, and then Miguel, Jake, uh, Eric, uh, Raj, DeSalvo, Hacking, and uh, Jake Holden. So that was race one. Uh, it was a good race. Not, nothing, nothing, nothing that... There was, well, there was a good battle there with Tommy and... and uh, uh, and Aaron and a few good passes thrown in there. Race two, I did not see. And the reason why is because I turned it on to, to watch. Actually, I watched the Supersport race right before that. Um, yeah, and then um, it started pouring. They went out, went ran one lap, and then the lightning came in. They red flagged it. They were like, uh, talked for 10 minutes, and they went to American Thunder. I'm like, all right, I'm out of here. I had, I had to go grocery I Well, I went grocery shopping, to be honest with you. I didn't think they were even going to run the race. Turns out they ran the race, and uh, Spees won that with uh, Hacking second, Maladin third, Yates finished fourth, uh, James Ellison in fifth. So, the, you know, good good result for James. Obviously, the, the Corona bike is uh, way down on power. Rain evens things out. Then um, Zemke, Holden. Uh, John Hayner, so uh, good up on the KWS crew. Eric, and then uh, Dominic Jones on the uh, NFS team, which was the only rider they had for the weekend. Uh, what was uh, anything from race two? Oh, so Malad made some comments about... Um, you know, I guess someone was trying to give him a hard time about, well, you said earlier in the season that all that matters is race wins. You were out there. You didn't really push that hard. Maladin, I'm not trying to be a Maladin apologist, even though I'm a Maladin fan. He basically said, I could have pushed harder and I would have thrown it down the road. doesn't really help things out, and how does it? So there are words to that effect. So, yeah, it was a good Maladin comeback. After race one, Maladin led the championship by couple points, but after race two, uh, Spies maintains a championship uh, lead of two points as they go to the next round. Uh, 307-305, Zemke, uh, then way back, so it literally is a championship now between those two guys. 
Um, not that anyone figured to be anything different. Zemke 232, Tommy up to 225, and Miguel with uh, 224. Super Sport race was run in the rain, and it was good to see um, Aaron Gobert uh, take a win. Uh, obviously, he's been making the progress all year. Now that he's healthy, his arms are in good shape, bikes there. Went out, and he was basically kicking everyone's ass in the, in that race. Uh, uh, Jamie finished second, and then Rod was third. Josh came home in fourth, and Josh flat out said, hey, you know what, I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to just try and ride smart. I wanna, I'm going to get as many points as I can, but I'm not going to ride so hard that I'm going to throw it down the road and you know, blow my championship lead. I'm sorry, back to race two for a second. In the Superbike hacking, finishing second, uh, he flat out said, we got issues with our bike. The only reason I'm on the podium is the fact that it was you know, it was raining, it's slower, the, the, the bike... It has to be set up soft, which was perfect for the rain, but for in dry conditions, um, it's it's way too soft. And anytime they try to tighten it up so it's more comfortable for him to ride, uh, it's doing it does nothing. So, anyways, I thought that was uh, interesting that Kawasaki uh, with the problems, uh, Super Sport. So we went to Josh, and then um, crap, who's seventy nine? I know it, and I can't think of it. Anyways, and then uh, Tommy. Uh, Chaz Davies, Steve Rapp, and then uh, Jeff May. Why can't I think of who 79 is? He'll come to me in a few minutes uh, when we're done with the show. So Josh still leads Supersport uh, by 11 points over Raj, uh, Jamie Hacking 136, Steve Rapp 128, and Tommy with 125. Formula Extreme, another win by Josh, uh, apparently with a, uh, a great battle with uh, Steve Rapp, and then uh, Cardenas uh, finished in third, so uh, cool for him. Josh up on, uh, up on points there over Steve by uh, 25 points. And in Superstock, I think uh, if memory serves, Ben Spees pretty much ran away with that race over uh, Jeff May and uh, oh Jesus, not Mark, oh, 61. Uh, oh Jesus, uh, brain fart on that one. Apologize, and then uh, and then uh, Ben Bostrom. So your points, Spees up on top over Jeff May. Uh, actually, May and Bostrom are tied for second spot. Aaron Yates is in uh, fourth spot with 141. So, anyways, with that, we are going way, way long. Well, not way long. We've gone much longer before in the past. Uh, this weekend, I believe, will Superbikes go back into action this weekend? So we went long talking a lot about MotoGP. Apologize. So no uh, World Superbike preview. Uh, AMA was testing at Mid-Ohio. They got one day in. There was rain on Tuesday. They actually went around on Wednesday. Supposedly Ben Spees was quick. Uh, and this weekend, uh, I guess most importantly, MotoGP at, uh, in Spain get the Catalonia GP. So, uh, outro music this week. I ended up, yes, I ended up picking something, uh, which was not my first choice. Actually, the first choice was going to be something for, uh, for Ray. Ray being the, uh, Rush slash Neil Parrott Slappy is going to throw something from, uh, from Led Zeppelin with Jason Bonham, uh, just because I had a particular song stuck in my head, and from that album was the uh, when they're doing the Pistons, when they're doing the Pistons stuff, the the guy that when they're testing out the audio had uh, something from Code on there, which is "We're Gonna Groove." The song's been stuck in my head for a week, and that song led me to remember the album Coda, which had Bonzo's Metro on it, which is a drum solo by Jason Bonham. And I don't. It wasn't as good as I. I don't remember it being a like super special drum solo. I just thought I remember it being pretty good. And I listened to it again, and it's like, eh, not so much. So came up with a different song, completely motorcycle uh, centric. 
you'll, you'll, you know, one of those songs that eh, it's cheesy, it's good, you won't like it, whatever. I always try to throw something in there. Anyway, so that'll uh, that'll wrap up the show. Uh, next week, um, hopefully, I'll have a show in by Tuesday. I'll let you know if the TZR is gone. If there's a new machine in the uh, in Duke's garage, and um, anything else that's been going on in the world. So, with that, we will, uh, as I like to say, wrap it up. Feedback always welcome. RumbleStripRadio at uh, gmail.com. Tell your friends about the show. Get them to subscribe. Get uh, anybody, you know, any way we can get more people in the show. It's starting to climb back up, but the sort of plateaued a little bit, so. I want more people. Who doesn't want more people listening to this show? So, have fun, be good, and most importantly, keep it on two wheels. We'll talk to you soon.
Rumble Strip Radio is a production of Raul Duke Media, LLC, and is protected under a Creative Commons license. Some rights are reserved.